0: Well, we are uh, right in, at the end of a series that we started just a few weeks ago called Friends. And the whole goal for this series was to see relationships through the lens of the Holy Spirit because too many times we see relationships in ways that maybe God doesn't see them. And I think the last few weeks have been very, very powerful, very helpful. Next week we kick off a series called gifted. Now, one of the things that we don't talk about a lot in the church are spiritual gifts, especially on Sunday. We might in other arenas, other venues. But I believe that if we look into the context of Scripture, the Bible talks a lot about the giftedness that the Holy Spirit wants to bring about in your life and in my life. And I think that if we realize that God has a gift that he wants to give us and we're not living with that gift, then maybe we're not living in the full purposes that God has for our lives. And so, for the next few weeks, we're going to look at spiritual gifts, and I believe that it could change the way you see your role in your job, the way that you see your role in your family, the way you see your role in relationships and friendships, because the way that God gives you is the way that God prepares you to serve, and so it's a big deal. And next week, we're actually going to have a very special announcement. I'm excited about it. I'm not even going to tell you what it's about, okay? So uh, you got to be here next week to hear the big announcement, something that we've all been praying about, working towards for a long time. And So I thought it would be helpful because of how impactful this series has been to really recap some of the first weeks. And so as we kind of build into this series today, I want to go back and revisit each week. The first week of this series, I told you that the Holy Spirit shows us how to be a friend. In John 14, 26, Jesus is introducing the Holy Spirit, and he says, The friend, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send at my request, will make everything plain to you. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the friend, which lets us know that the way that we relate to the Holy Spirit actually creates a template for us to understand friendship. And friendship is so important that friendship is the template for every other healthy relationship. So we're going to come back to this message throughout our talk today because we're going to look specifically today at marriage. And we're going to go back to that first week and look at the principles that we learned and then apply them to our marriage. But in the second week, I told you that relationships are challenging because we won't accept the hard truths. A lot of times we we like the convenient and the comfortable truths, but we don't want to look at the hard truths about our lives. And a lot of times that's what's keeping us from being healthy in the relationships that we find ourselves in. And so I told you during that message, three hard truths. Three hard truths for better relationships. Number one, this is not heaven. If this is not heaven, that means that this is not perfect. And I need to manage my expectations For everything in my life, none of it will be perfect. Number two, you are not a good person. You are not a good person. Jesus says that if you're not God, you're not good. So we learn that if we're not God, only God is good. We learn that we can only be good if we're God so We're not God, we're not good. All right, so you're not a good person. Number three, you are not that important. Not that you're not important, hard truth is that you're not that important, which means that there are things about our lives you've been at the center of your consciousness since you were a child, but you are not at the center of the universe. You are not that important. And if we can receive those three truths, It can have a dramatic impact on our relationships. And last week I told you that every family, every family has a sinful past, but Jesus redeems us from our sin. Every family comes at this, specifically the context of family, comes at it from an an angle where in the past there's been sin. And so... Jesus and the work of Jesus in our lives is to redeem us from that brokenness. The last three weeks, if you've been around, they, they have been amazing. If you've missed them, I, w- I want to encourage you, go back and listen to those messages. Uh, we have an amazing app. As a matter of fact, if you have a, a second right now, you can take a, a picture of this graphic, and that QR code will lead you. If you've, if you've got uh, an Apple device, an iOS device, you can go to the App Store and download, just search. Cert- Vortex Church, if you come from uh, any kind of uh, native uh, Google device, you can go to the Google Play Store and download it. There's a lot, pretty much any device that you're on, you can download the Vortex Church app, and that'll take you to a device where where you can literally, while you're working out, while you're driving to work, you can listen to those messages. So today I want to deal with this question. How can the Holy Spirit change my marriage? How can the Holy Spirit change? change my marriage. In Galatians chapter 5, the Bible says this, that since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. If we're going to live by the Spirit, we're going to live a life that is provoked and guided by the Spirit. We've got to be willing in every part of our lives, not just in the parts that we pick, not just in the way that we do Sunday morning or the way that we've got to literally lay aside it all and go, I'm giving it all to you, God. Lead me, guide me every part of my life. And I know that God is leading and guiding me when there's something happening. And that's this, if the Holy Spirit is leading you, the Holy Spirit is changing you. The the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives is is not to keep us static and comfortable. It's literally to lead us into God's plans and purposes. And so today, I, I believe the Holy Spirit can radically change your marriage. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to go back to the very first message that I preached in this series, where I, I give you five principles of looking at the character and the nature of the Holy Spirit, and the way that we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, and we see out of that how to be a good friend. So we're going to go back and review those, and for every one of them, I'm going to make an application to marriage. So here's the first one. I told you in the first week that a good friend is close to us. There's a lot of things that friends can be and should be that they can't be if they're not close. Close. We need some people close to us in our lives. Friendship is more than just a like on a social media platform. We don't need people who are just for us. We need people who are with us and a good friend is close to us. Jesus in John 16 is getting ready to leave and he's talking to his disciples and says, "You know, if, if I go, if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. What he's saying is, listen, I'm, I'm limited by my physical presence here as a person, fully God and fully man. But if I go, I can send the Holy Spirit that will be with all of you wherever you go. Why? Because God wants to be with you. God is not just for you, God is with you. God doesn't just love you from a distance. God loves you intimately and up close. Why is it so important to know that a friend wants to be close to you? This is why. Because you can't love from a distance. You can't love from a distance. This idea that That, yeah, I love you, but I'm not involved in your life. It's not, this is is a radically modern idea that when we look at its implications in our practical lives, no, the people that love us are the people who are with us. You can't love from a distance. And here's how the Holy Spirit, if you're taking notes, can change your marriage when it comes to this understanding of being close. Number one, the Holy Spirit creates intimacy. The Holy Spirit creates intimacy. Now, some of y'all are like, I want some more of that. Intimacy, can we schedule, hey, honey, can we schedule some of that for Wednesday night? I just need to, let's go ahead and book it right now, all right? And it really, that the way that we understand intimacy really is, is kind of telling for why we don't live lives that are as connected as they should be. Marriage is designed, if you're married, please hear me. Marriage is designed to be the most intimate relationship that you have in your entire life. And that is not just physically. Let me go through different dynamics real quickly of intimacy. There's social intimacy. This is how we spend our time, how our time is interwoven. It's not your time and my time. It's our time. How do we do time together? Emotional intimacy. Emotional intimacy is how do I how do I share and receive emotions? To what degree are our emotions interwound within the context of our relationship? Financial intimacy. This is the idea that it is no longer just like time. It's no longer my money and your money. It's our money. How do we do money together? The problem is a lot of y'all, the number one problem confessed in relationships is money. And so many of y'all want to do money the world's way but live in God's blessings. You can't do that. The only way you're going to live in the intimacy that God wants for you in your marriage is to do money the right way, and that's to create the right kind of boundary where this is our money. We might fight about it now, but I'd rather fight about doing money together than have the money fights that come later because you were able to hide your secret sin because I couldn't see what was going on in your money. Financial, physical intimacy, that's what we often know for intimacy. And then spiritual intimacy, how are we growing together? Sharing what God's doing in my life. I'm I'm listening. I'm encouraging your spiritual life. I'm going to say this. You need healthy boundaries to protect the intimacy of your marriage. You need healthy boundaries to protect the intimacy of your marriage. I just get real practical, okay? For us, we recognized early on that when you're in ministry, you're going to have a bunch of people who are always asking you to do things. And at some point, we had to recognize that this relationship, the relationship that my wife and I share, is, is the most important relationship. And we had to create some boundaries to protect our, our time our time. And so we came up with the boundary early on that we wanted to spend the majority of our evenings together at home because there are good things that you want to happen in your relationship with your spouse that ain't going to happen if you don't have time together. You know what I'm saying? Like you need some time. And so you got to protect that time. And so we said majority, which means that we have a three night a week rule. Now there have been seasons and times where we can't go. We, I, I've got I've got four four meetings. I've got to do that. It's just this week. But as a rule, it's three nights out a week. That's everything. That's going to visit friends. That's for work. That's and what is that? That's a boundary to protect our intimacies. Some of y'all are going, listen, I don't like that. I don't like rules. I like to have freedom. And here's the problem with that. Refusing boundaries often leads to sin. And you want to know what destroys intimacy? You remember Adam and Eve in the garden going walking with God, literally that close to God that every afternoon they get a visit from God. God shows up. They go on a little walk, get to walk and talk with God. What destroyed that? Sin. Sin destroys intimacy. And a lot of us aren't willing to take the steps that we need to to safeguard the intimacy in our marriage because we're scared that we're going to lose something. Listen, Romans 6 makes this clear. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Some of us are willing to let sin come into our finances, to come into the way that we spend our time, to come into the way that we handle emotions, to come into all of those areas. And here's what happens. When sin gets there, death follows. And you'll be asking the question, I don't know what happened. I thought we were all right. Well, the problem is that you wanted some kind of idea of freedom and you didn't want to obey God. And eventually, because you weren't willing to obey God, sin crept in and it destroyed the intimacy that the Holy Spirit was trying to build. Freedom is not the absence of boundaries. Freedom is found in the presence of the right boundaries. So the first thing is that the Holy Spirit creates intimacy. Number two, if you were with us in the first week, I told you this, that a good friend loves us with the love of God. A good friend loves us with the love of God. This is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. God's love has been poured. This is what Romans 5 says. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You'll never experience the love of God to the degree to which you need to without a life-giving relationship with the Holy Spirit. God wants to love you. He created you as an object for his love. He wants to love you. And part of the way that God pours his love into our hearts is through the avenue of our relationship with the Holy Spirit. But there's a big difference between what we're being sold in this culture and what it calls love and what the Bible shows us about love. So I went through in that message and showed you some of the difference. Just to isolate on one, what's the difference between worldly love and God's love? Worldly love is selfish, but God's love is sacrificial. If You just kind of take a step back and look at the way the world is telling you to love. Like, I will love you if you do something that serves me. If I know that as I make a deposit into that relationship, that there is a return coming my way, then I'll, I'll be emotionally invested to love you. I hope that when you just see it in that regard, you see how broken and busted of an idea about love that is. Worldly love is selfish, but God's love is sacrificial. And this is how the Holy Spirit impacts our marriages. Number two, if you're taking notes, the Holy Spirit helps us love one another with the love of God, with the love of God. You need to, if you're married, you need to learn how to love your spouse with the love of God. Because if you keep trying to take this cheap knockoff that the world sells as love and bring that in, all you're going to do is wreck things. Worldly love is remarkably selfish and I've said this a bunch if you want to wreck your marriage consistently choose selfishness you want to wreck your kids parent through selfishness you want to wreck your business make it all about you but if you want to wreck your marriage consistently choose selfishness. Elevate your desires, your needs, your perspectives. Make it all about you. Make it revolve around you and watch it all crumble real quick. There's something in us that looks around the world and wants to see a love that's not like the love the world is trying to sell us. Occasionally, we'll see it in in stories of, of people who sacrificed greatly. Those who have went on before us in following Jesus, you may have had a grandmother or a teacher or a neighbor that loved you with the love of God. And we look at that and we just say, that's so otherworldly, that I want to experience it so much that many of us read this passage of Scripture which describes the love of God when we got married. 1 Corinthians 13, look at this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It, is not, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And keep that up there. A lot of us will look at that and go, I I want that. I want that kind of love in my life. I, I want somebody that will love me like that. But let me just kind of flip the tables on you and mess with you for a moment. Are you the kind of person that loves other people like that? Do you give that kind of love? Let's just make it a, a test for a moment, okay? Let's see, I'm going to reread this, but as I do it, when it says love, in your mind, take the word love out and put your name in there. I'll do it with my name. Kevin is patient. Kevin is kind. Kevin does not envy. Kevin does not boast. Kevin is not proud. Kevin does not dishonor others. Kevin is not self-seeking. Kevin is not easily angered. Kevin keeps no record of wrongs. Kevin does not delight in evil, but Kevin rejoices with the truth. I'm just going to be honest. I got like three into it and was very convicted, okay? And if you're honest, probably you were too. Because if, if, if we're just going to kind of get the heart out and put it on the table for a moment, the truth is, is that we don't love with the love of God. And I want to address why we don't. How do you love with the love of God? Think about this. You can't give something you don't have. And there's a lot of us that go, I want to love that way, but I don't have it inside. And for some of us, the best thing that you can do for your marriage, and for your kids, and for your future, and for your employees, and for your business, is get alone for about 20 minutes into a practice that the ancients would call centering prayer, which means you go to God without asking him to do anything for you. I'm not going to my Bible because I want an answer. I'm not coming to God because I need a word. I'm just simply knowing that you made me to be loved. That's how you made me. And so I'm going to sit in your presence and God, I'm going to make space. I'm going to make room in my life and say, God, would you just love me? I don't even know how to be loved, but would you love me? Because I know that I'll never love my spouse. I'll never love my kids. I'll never love my coworkers, my neighbors, my friends. I'll never love them the way that they're supposed to be loved until I love them with your love. And I cannot give them what I do not have. The way to greater love is receiving God's love in a greater way. And some of us need to make space in our lives to get centered on the love of God, to receive his love. Because you can't give somebody something you don't have. And that's why the Holy Spirit is so important. The Holy Spirit helps us to love one another with the love of God, and then in that first message, the the third thing that I, I told you about a good friend is a good friend shows up to help us. A good friend shows up to help us when we when we're in need. A good friend shows up. John fourteen says this. And Jesus speaking says, "I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever." The Holy Spirit's name there is the Helper. That's What he does, he he sees the weaknesses and needs in our life and shows up to help us overcome them. And a good friend is, is mutually, a good friendship is mutually submitted to each other to serve each other's needs, which means that in a good friendship, I'm looking at my friend and going, what do they need? I'm gonna give up my time. I'm gonna give up my energy, my resources to serve that name. They're doing the same thing. We're mutually submitted. So I want you to see this today. Number three in your notes, the Holy Spirit enables us to serve each other's greatest needs. To serve each other's greatest needs. Marriages thrive. Marriages thrive when spouses consistently serve the other's needs. I can go ahead and tell you, marriage gets real hard when it's two people sitting there going, but what about me? What are you doing for me? Why are you not meeting my needs? And marriages can become manipulative and abusive when it's one person who's trying to serve and one person who's all about themselves. But marriages thrive when spouses are committed to serving each other. And there's a difference Can I just be honest? There's a difference between a felt need and a real need. I'm going to just be, I'm just going to put myself out there for a moment. I'm a little bit of a neat freak, okay? It's just how I am. I can walk into a room, and if it's a little disorganized, it'll bother me. I'll go over and move something on the table, get all back organized. And and it's really because, like, I'll, I'll be distracted by that. I, my, my brain will kind of drift to the things that are out of place. And so for me to function at a high level, I know that I've got to have all that stuff kind of sorted out, so I'll just go do it. i just get it all organized, then we'll have a conversation. But I'll come into our house, and I've got three people in my house that do not care how organized our house is i've got a 10-year-old daughter i've got an 8-year-old son and i've got a 4-year-old son and they got their own agenda they got their own agenda about what it should be like and every day when they get home they're getting their toys out they're getting their costumes out they're getting all their stuff out and i come in and i'm like this is chaos what are you? and i can do i can do that it's a felt need, I want this all cleaned up, but you want to know what I really need i don't need it clean. What I really need is as their father to create a safe space for them to have time to play, for them to have time, for there to be a little chaos in their lives doesn't mean we don't clean it up afterwards, but that's a felt need versus a real need, and some of us in our in our relationships we we feel a little bit like. I don't know what, I don't know how to serve. Here's the thing. The Holy Spirit in us is the help our spouse needs. This is why this topic that we're going to get into next week of spiritual gifts is so important because I believe that in the context of marriage, God will gift one in a way that elevates the giftedness of another. God will gift one in a way that covers the weakness of another. God will gift you in such a way. And we need to know that the Holy Spirit in us is the help that our spouse needs. But hear this. It might not be what they wanted. (laughs) The, The help that you have to offer might be what they need, but maybe not what they want. Ephesians chapter 5 is the most preeminent passage on marriage in the New Testament. And it begins with that idea submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so as you go through Ephesians 5, it's actually talking about how do we submit to each other? What is it supposed to look like? And so it begins in verse 22 by talking to the ladies, and it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. And in the next verse, it actually goes on to say, Submit to your husband in everything. It creates what is called in theology a closed loop or an allscape. It does not give an out. And it drafts for us what is the greatest need for a woman in the context of her relationship to her husband. And it's this. A woman's greatest need in marriage is to be led is to be led. Now I'm I know that when I say this in this culture in this time that there are a lot of you going uh-uh that is not how it's going to work for me. And I want you to understand that that instinct that you just felt takes you all the way back to where all these problems started. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a garden of perfection and puts Adam and Eve in that garden. And he speaks to Adam as the head of his family. Adam Take dominion over all of this. I give you a job, but you got one rule. There's a tree in the middle of this. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are not to eat from that tree. You know the story, right? Satan shows up to tempt, and who does he show up to tempt? Eve. And when he shows up, he's like, you know, hey, you got any kind of ground rules for this? And yeah, there's... God said there's a tree over there. We're not supposed to eat from that tree because if we eat from that tree, we're going to die. This Watch the temptation here in Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. You will not certainly die, the serpent said, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, the very first temptation is still the most common temptation. You will be in control. You will be like God. And today, I would say that when I have sat couples down experientially, the most common problem that I see in the hearts of women, brokenness that is inherited from your mom Eve, is the desire to control that for which you have no authority to control. And if that is the greatest brokenness, the greatest need that you have is to be led. Not in a dominating way. So let me just move on to the husband so I can talk about what that's supposed to look like. The very next verse, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does that mean? What does it look like to understand how Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her? Jesus is in heaven eternally adored as the prince of heaven where everything is as he wants it. Everything is as he wishes where he is consistently and perpetually worshipped. And what did he do? He laid that aside to go into a world where nothing is as he wants it, where everything that's going to make it right is going to demand everything that he has. A husband who's willing to say, it's not about me. This thing is not going to be wrapped around my preferences. It's not going to be, I'm not worried about my my family and my marriage being self-serving. No, like Jesus, my job in all this is to give up my life. A man's greatest need in marriage is to sacrifice his life is to look into the eyes of his wife and to look into his kids and to believe that there is something so valuable, something so beautiful in them that I'm willing to lay aside my preferences. I'm willing to lay aside my comfort so that I can serve their greatest need. I will put my life down so that I can lift their life up. And I have yet to talk to a young woman who doesn't want to be led that way. The Holy Spirit enables you, empowers you to serve the greatest needs. Number four, I told you this in the first message that a good friend tells us the truth. In John 16, the Bible says, When the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Convict us of sin, show us how we're missing the mark. Convict us of God's righteousness, that God has a right plan for our life, and show us that there's a judgment coming if we're not willing to step into God's mercy and grace. And so I told you this in that first message, that truth without grace is mean. Truth without grace is me. And grace without truth is meaningless. But God loves us with truth and grace. So to make the application to your marriages, I want you to see this, that the Holy Spirit creates a culture of truth and grace. I love that word culture. It means the way of life. Kind of the idea here is that, that as we follow the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit creates for us a way of life that elevates both truth and grace because we too often polarize, especially in the culture of our marriage, to one side or the other. We polarize to one side or the other. and the, a, a culture of truth without grace can be harsh and can be abusive. Some of y'all grew up in families like that. What, we just tell the truth. Not a lot of love in it, but we want, and some of y'all have been that way. And you ask the questions, you know, I don't know why people don't come to me for advice anymore. Because you're harsh. You're harsh. It's truth without grace. And the problem is, is that sometimes when that's the culture, it's not just harsh, but it kind of bleeds over at times into becoming Abusive. But a culture of, of grace without truth is passive and enabling. I, I want you to hear this. If you go back to Genesis 3 and you look at that story of Adam and Eve, the temptation, if you read the story clearly, what you're going to see is that Adam is standing next to Eve while that conversation with the serpent goes down. And what you'll find is that while there are a lot of our ladies who are daughters of Eve who are controlling, there are a lot of us who are sons of Adam who are passive, who just like our father Adam sat there and did nothing. We, we want this. You know, I just, I, just, I just don't want to get involved. I want to cause problems. A culture of truth and grace is hard but you'll know that you're getting close to it when you start to have hard but loving conversations difficult but loving conversations and you you see this identity in 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 the bible as a matter of fact ephesians 4 says instead we will speak the truth in love growing in every way to be more and more like christ Jesus is described in John chapter 1 by his best friend John. How did he describe him? In John 1:14 the Bible says, "The Word became flesh, God's word eternally became flesh in Jesus, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." So what I want to do real quick is we kind of just deal with this topic. I want to talk about how do I have difficult But loving conversations. You're gonna know that you're creating a culture of truth and grace when you're having difficult but loving conversations. And here's the first one Do I need to say it? Do I need to? There are some things you want to say that you don't need to say. I've often said that you can make a point or you can make a difference, but you rarely get to make both. And so sometimes we gotta ask the question Is this, though it's truthful, is it loving? Is it love? Is it loving to say this? Am I saying this in love or am I just trying to make a point? Do I need to say it? Number 2, is this for me or for them? And I want to tell you that that question has radically for me reshaped the way I process having these conversations. Because there's sometimes you're just like, I just want to say it because I don't want you to do that to me. I don't want you to bother me. I don't want you to hurt me. And you keep saying that, it bothers me. It hurts my feelings. Is it for me or is it, I keep watching you wreck your life, wreck your heart, wreck emotions, because you keep making these decisions over and over and over again. Is it for you or is it for them? And then number three, and this is, in this last season, I had a friend, I was going through something difficult, and they asked me this question it has been so helpful for me. What does love require of me? Because there are times that what love is going to ask me to do is to just give grace and move on. I don't even need the conversation. Love is going to see that in the context of my relationship with God, like I have been more offensive to him than this person ever has been to me. And the truth is is that a, a, a loving relationship with each other can go towards grace and go towards truth, but the Holy Spirit will create a culture of truth and grace, of truth and grace. And we need that. And you'll know that you're doing that when you're having Difficult but loving conversations. And here's the last one, number five. A good friend points us to Jesus. A good friend points us to Jesus. John 15, 26 says, uh, when, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is actually to point people. To, to look through me and see Jesus. So I asked you this question in that first week, and I think it's important to even ask right now. If people look at your life, what's your life pointing them towards? What is it pointing them towards? So today, in regards to marriage, if you're taking notes, number five would be this, that the Holy Spirit leads us to point each other to Jesus. The Holy Spirit leads us to point each other to Jesus. I mean, the Holy Spirit is actively working always in our lives and around us to enable us to point people to Jesus, to be his witness and Acts 1 8, the Bible says that when we receive this power from God, the whole purpose of this relationship with the Holy Spirit is to be His witness in this world. So, I'm going to give you some homework if you're married today. And it's probably a question that you don't want to ask, but it will be awfully telling. I want you to go home and I want you to ask your spouse this question What story is my life telling? behind closed doors? What story is my life telling behind closed doors? When you see me when nobody else sees me, is my life a witness to Jesus? Or am I being a witness to somebody else? Look at how great my boss is or look how great the advice is from that person. Or am I being a witness to myself? Is the thrust and intentionality of my life trying to tell everybody around me how awesome I am behind the scenes? I'm just going, you know what? If you could finally do things the way I want you to do them, you'd be a whole lot better off and we'd have a lot less problems. Somebody needs to hear this today. You are not your spouse's Savior. You're not the one that's going to lay down their life and bring them back into right relationship with God. You're not the Savior. And a lot of times we can become so puffed up and prideful that we think that I'm here to save your life. No, you're not. But you do have a role in pointing them to the Savior. Because there's truth about all of us. We all need a Savior. You know, if you think about your marriage, something is at the center of your marriage. Something's there. What is it? Is it your opinions? Your perspectives? Is is what's at the center of your marriage? Is it the way mom and daddy did things, or the way my friends do things. Because I want you to hear that Jesus is the only center for an authentic, healthy marriage. The only center. And if we want to get things right in life, we've gotta make sure that Jesus is the center of everything. Not just my top priority. He's the center of my family. He's the center of my marriage. He's the center of my finances. In John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Think about that in your marriage. Who is determining the way? Who's defining the truth? And where are you looking for life? That will all point you to where your center is. So what's at the center of your life? Because today, okay, this whole message, this isn't an invitation to a better marriage. This is an invitation to make Jesus the center of everything in your life. That when you don't know the way, he's your way. When you feel confused about what's real, he's your truth. And when you're looking in a thousand different places to find life, you surrender those and say, Jesus, I'm going to look to you. I want you to be the center of my life.